And today we're looking at Jonah, and while there are some clear parallels to the previous passages, we definitely have something different going on. But before we jump into it, I want to ask you a few questions. And no, you do not have to discuss them in small groups, uh, but I still want you to think about them, so I'm going to ask and give you know, a few moments of silence between each question, just for you to think on it. Um, we're not going to answer this at the end, but just for, to prompt you. So the first question is, I wonder if you've ever been confronted with some wrong or injustice you've been committing. I wonder how you responded. I wonder how many of you have ever been mad at God. And I wonder how you worked it out. Okay, I want to let you sit with that for a bit. In the meantime, let me tell you about Jonah. Now, some of you are probably familiar with the story of Jonah. In fact, it's the story that ESG is working on this season. But I'm guessing that most of you would be familiar primarily with the fact that Jonah gets swallowed by some big fish or a whale. And, well, you might find that amusing. You should. The book was meant as an absurd comedic tale about a grumpy prophet. Well, this grumpy prophet doesn't start off in the fish or even on the sea anywhere near a giant fish. Jonah starts out in his own land, the land of Israel, and receives a calling from God. Now, this is a big dramatic reveal for something that is very undramatic. Thank you, yes. So just because I have to, because this is my work, I just feel like I need, I'm compelled to draw a map in most of my classes. So uh, we've got the Mediterranean Sea over here. Tarshish is that way, which comes up later. Uh, Israel is kind of hanging around, around here. It's very small. You've got the Euphrates River, Tigris River, Assyria, capital city, one of the capital cities, Nineveh, over here. Main routes. I mean, it's pretty close to scale, I would say, actually. Uh, one to a hundred thousand. <laughs> okay, so God begins by telling Jonah, who's over in Israel, to get up. So in Hebrew, it actually there's this motion. You, you miss a lot of the little puns uh, in Hebrew, but it jo tells Jonah to get up and head to the great and wicked city of Nineveh, the capital of the oppressive Assyrian Empire, and to preach to it. And so Jonah promptly responds by going down to Jaffa which is along the coast, almost exactly in the opposite direction from Nineveh. And there he finds a ship, he pays the fare, and goes down into the ship. And when off at sea, heading as far from Nineveh as possible, over to Tarshish, way over in the west, uh, he goes down into the hold of the ship. Why would Jonah do such a thing? Jonah flees from the very God he serves as a prophet. It's all about Nineveh. The Israelites hated the Assyrians. The Assyrians were a massive empire that oppressed all the smaller groups in the area, including Israel. But at this point, we still don't know exactly why Jonah flees. Maybe he's scared of going into enemy territory. We don't really have many other stories in the Bible of 
prophets traveling to foreign peoples and prophesying there. So we don't have much precedent for trying to figure out what Jonah is doing. We're simply not told, at least not yet. Now, when Jonah is hiding out in the bottom of the ship, sailing on the Mediterranean, God decides to rein in this wayward prophet. God hurls a storm at the ship. And not just any storm, but a storm that will destroy their ship. And the sailors who are on this ship, who are not Israelites, are panicking and they're throwing stuff overboard, but nothing seems to work. They think, therefore, that this must be the result of angering a god. So they try to get everyone to pray to their gods in hopes that something will work. And when that doesn't work, they decide to cast lots to see whose fault this storm really is. And unsurprisingly, the lots show it's Jonah. The sailors ask him, therefore, who are you? Where are you from? What have you done? And Jonah, who really should have done something before this point, finally reveals that he is a Hebrew and that he fled to the sea from the God who created both dry land and the sea which you may surmise is not the brightest of moves, to flee to the sea from the God who created it. So Jonah says to them, you should just pick me up and throw me down into the sea. And the sailors respond actually more admirably than Jonah, and they say, no, 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 we don't want to do that. They're worried that they might get the guilt of his death on their heads. So they try actually desperately to row to shore, but that doesn't work. And so finally they give in. They pick Jonah up. Again, that up-down language. They pick him up and throw him down into the sea. And he gets swallowed by that fishy beast. But what's interesting about this scene, at least to me, uh, is the fact that God is using a storm to destroy Jonah. And while I don't have time to explain it, I do think that Jonah getting swallowed up in the sea and by this fish is supposed to represent a kind of death sequence for Jonah. So why is this interesting? Um, Can any of you think of a story where God uses a storm or a great wind against the sea? Do tell, Melody. Okay, how about in Hebrew Bible? Yes, Jesus also. Yep, sorry, I should have explained. The Red Sea also actually, just so you know, it's actually the Reed Sea, but, you know, it's problematically translated. Anyway, but yes, you got it. Thank you, Dane. Uh, and, and what happens there, Dane? What happens at the Reed Sea? Um, God sends a mighty wind, but a breathless water. Okay. And the general story that this is found in is the Exodus, right? So God delivers, yeah, thank you. I mean, we're done now. Uh, God delivers the people of Israel from Egypt and uses a stormy wind to blow back the sea in order to let the Israelites cross safely to the other side. And then God has the sea crash back down, destroying the enemies that are chasing them. And interestingly, the Exodus story is the main place in the Hebrew Bible, also called the Old Testament, where the term Hebrews is used for the people of God. And that's how Jonah identifies himself. This God plus plus wind plus sea is found elsewhere as well. It's found in the creation story in Genesis 1. 
It's in the flood story. It's, in the, it's even echoed in the crossing of the Jordan River story. And it's actually not just a biblical story. It's a part of a common ancient West Asian story where, God use, where a god, depending on who you are, uses wind to fight against the sea. But what's funny is that in nearly all of those cases, especially Exodus, the sea is beaten back to preserve or create life for God's people. But in this case, God uses it to destroy Jonah, the Hebrew, the representative of God's people. And it's a flipped story. It's an ironic use of this story. Jonah, who identified himself as a Hebrew, is treated more like the Egyptians. And something has gone seriously wrong. And so Jonah finds himself in the fish. Now, Jonah has some time to think while he's sitting in the belly of the beast, and he comes to repent. We're not really sure what he's repenting of exactly. He doesn't really say, but he repents at least enough so that God commands the fish to bring him back up and unceremoniously vomit him on the shore. And that's actually the word that is used. Uh, and that's when God gives Jonah a second chance. He again commands him to go up to Nineveh and prophesy there. And so this time, Jonah goes. And so as readers, we have hope. He heads to Nineveh and shares his message. And, you know, when prophets normally go, prophets in the Bible normally go and share a message, they usually start their message with, thus says the Lord, or something like that. And then they give the message, and sometimes what follows is, you know, a description of some disaster that might happen, but also there's, a, there's a, uh, an appeal to change, to repent, or something like that. Um, maybe this disaster is headed their way because of how they've been acting, but there is this call usually to repent. But when Jonah arrives at the great city... He doesn't offer any customary prophetic speech. There's no, thus says the Lord, or uh, repent and change your ways. Instead, Jonah simply says, in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. That's it. And what do these people, these people that Jonah and the Israelites hate, what do they do in response? And Ed read this, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast, and everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Then he had a proclamation made in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, no human being or animal, no herd or flock, shall taste anything. They shall not feed, nor shall they drink water, Human beings and animals shall be covered with sackcloth, and they shall cry mightily to God. All shall turn away from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. Who knows? God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Boom. From king to cattle, from old to young, every last person and animal in Nineveh puts on sackcloth and fasts from food and water. It is comical how quickly and how completely the people of Nineveh change their ways and choose good. And what's more, they do all this just in the hopes that maybe, just maybe, God will see it and withdraw the punishment. They don't even have confidence it'll happen. Jonah didn't tell them that they might 
be saved if they repent. And Jonah, the Hebrew, is a reluctant prophet dragging his heels the entire time, running away from God. And the Assyrians, instant and total repentance and choosing God's way. And if that's not an indictment of Jonah, I don't know what is. And God, God decides to pull back and grant mercy and compassion to the people of Nineveh. And on the other side, we have Jonah. Never has any prophet had such an immediate, unanimous, successful response to their prophecy. It is the, the most successful prophet in history. And you know what his response is? In chapter 4, I knew it, God. I knew it all along that you would go and pull something like this. I knew that you are gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in love, and that's why I didn't want to come here. I'd rather die. Please, kill me now. He says that in response. And remember that earlier, we didn't know why Jonah was fleeing God's prophetic call. And now we do. He didn't want God to show love to the Assyrians. And when it all happens as he had predicted, Jonah, prophet of God, throws a massive tantrum. God responds to the question, are you right to be angry? And the question hangs there unanswered. Jonah storms off to sit outside the city and watch what happens. And you can sense God's sigh and head shake. And because this story is more about Jonah than the Ninevites, God decides to give his prophet a lesson. She makes a plant grow over Jonah, giving him shade from the sweltering hot sun. Jonah luxuriates in the shade, loving this plant. But the next morning, God destroys the plant. And Jonah gets so angry that again, he claims that he would rather die than experience the heat. He's full of tantrums, this Jonah. And God and Jonah follow this up with a little talk, but we're going to come back to that later. For now, I want you to remember again the questions we started with. Remember also the passages we've covered so far in this series. Remember Ruth and Naomi. Remember the Israelites welcoming the outsiders after their deliverance from Egypt. Remember those, those questions I mentioned about being confronted with your own wrongdoing and remember when you have maybe felt angry with God. And maybe you find yourself somewhere in this story. I wonder where. Maybe you're a Ninevite. Maybe you've been confronted with uh, some wrong that you've done, perhaps harm you've done to others. Are you ready to repent? Maybe you are, and God welcomes you. Or maybe you're like Jonah, and God's nudging you, saying that you might not be as welcoming of others as you ought to be. Maybe you resent that. Maybe you resent God's openness to others. Or maybe you're still stuck back in the belly of the fish. Or maybe a sailor crying out for help to whoever will listen. 
Or perhaps as a Ninevite yourself, you find yourself welcomed into a story that previously excluded you. And you know, at the heart of God's story is God's welcome of us without us ever having earned it. And as many or all of us would qualify as Gentiles, our story is certainly one where we ourselves got grafted in and welcomed into God's family where we hadn't been before. That's at the heart of our story. Friends, I'm not sure where you're at right now and how this story lands for you. It could go a whole lot of ways. But sometimes we forget the welcome and hospitality we've been called to. We forget who we are and what God wants for us. We've been through a lot in the past few years. And that's also something that we've been repeating over and over again until we can't even imagine flourishing again. We mistrust one another. And sometimes we don't give each other the benefit of the doubt. We don't treat each other like siblings in this family of Christ. We can do better. I know we can. And this naturally reminds me of, char- of a character in Tolkien's Silmarillion. That's what you should put in your intro, Octavio, is my connection to Tolkien. Uh, in describing the role of the character Oloran, it says this. Though he loved the elves, he walked among them unseen or in form as one of them, and they did not know whence came the fair visions or the promptings of wisdom that he put into their hearts. In later days, he was the friend of all and took pity on their sorrows. And those who listened to him awoke from despair and put away the imaginations of darkness. God is moving among us. God is doing amazing things. And we can join them. We can awake from despair and put away the imaginations of darkness. That sounds a lot better than sitting on the sidelines grumbling with Jonah. Friends, I think it's time for us to take another step toward health. We have, of course, big decisions ahead of us, and I'm not only talking about the inclusion vote, though I am talking about that as well. I'm also talking about things like the budget, which is going to be hard and extremely sensitive we have the ability to really hurt each other. But we can also be siblings together. We can treat one another with deep compassion and open-heartedness. In fact, we need to do so. It is vital. That's the kind of place church should be. We need to join in God's work. When Jonah struggles to join in God's work, God and Jonah have that little chat I mentioned. In chapter 4, verse 8 onward, it says, When the sun rose, God prepared a sultry east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and asked that he might die. He said, It is better for me to die than to live But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And he said, yes, 
angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, You are concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also many animals? And the book ends there. That question hanging. You, Jonah, are so caught up in your own version of things that you can't see what I am doing. You can't see what's important. If you can care so much about this little bush that you had nothing to do with, how much more should I care about this whole city with all its people and all its animals? Shouldn't I care about these people even though they're different from you? Shouldn't I have compassion on those others? Shouldn't I care about them? Grandview, it's time to gather round. It's time to remember who we are and to remember who God is. It's time to start taking steps toward one another in love. Maybe in disagreement too, but certainly in love. Let's remember our God who calls us to love one another. And moreover, our God who calls us to welcome those that struggle to find that love elsewhere. Let's remember our journey wall exercise that many of us participated in. Remember what we named as our core values. Let's dig into that again. I think the story of Jonah might be calling us to do that, to think also outside ourselves, to be God's people in the world. As you may know, I've been on the pastoral search team, and while I can't share specifics at the moment, I do want to say I'm encouraged. I think we've got a chance for a good new chapter in our story. During the search process, we've conducted several interviews, and the applicants often ask us to describe Grandview. And you know, being here for almost 15 years now, I could say a lot of things. But I found myself thinking back to some of the earliest impressions I had of this church. And early though they may be, they have stuck with me and have rung true for my whole time being here. And what I said more or less was this. Grandview is not slick. Craig Greenfield actually called us the unslick church. We're a family. We can hear one another sing in the pews, for better or worse. <laughs> and at my first Easter service, and at pretty much everyone since then, having come through Lent, starting with Ash Wednesday all the way through, through Holy Week, I look around, and at that time I looked around at the sheer and deep-seated joy written on people's faces in the pews, and I thought, wow, this church gets it. I mean, really gets it. Gets the story of Jesus, the story of God. I know many of us are still tired, still hurt. I am. Maybe we've gone on autopilot. I have. Maybe we feel like we've been chewed up and vomited out by a whale. And maybe we lost sight of who we are and why we're here. But God is calling us again. Let's say yes.
Amen.